This is a hypothetically great podcast. This is Tech News for MBAs. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. It is Friday, February 18th, 2022. Welcome back to another edition of Tech News for MBAs, and let me officially welcome you to Season 3, a.k.a. the spring semester of 2022. If you listened last week, that was a really special episode. Uh, I had never done something like that before where I brought my microphone into the classroom at Columbia Business School and set up shop uh, in my intro to product management class in front of about 80 students in a big lecture hall in our new beautiful classroom at uh, the new Manhattanville campus. It's like up in Harlem, modern, amazing, new, shiny uh, buildings with all glass windows, and you can see the sun setting over the Hudson River, and really an energizing place to be. And I thought that'd be a fun way to kick off the season with a live episode in front of the class and even got to do a live Q&A with a couple of the students. So that was really awesome. And thanks again to the students that were there. Uh, super fun and exciting kind of experiment to run in real time, but it worked out well. I hope we have an opportunity to do more episodes like that. This week, I am back to my normal setup of sitting alone in a small room with a microphone. And a couple of things to ask you. It would be amazing if you could leave a review or rating or both on your local podcast store, wherever you're listening to this, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever else. Just takes a couple of minutes, um, but it really, really helps with the rankings and uh, for people to discover this podcast. And I do want to try to get the word out with that. You can also just like tell a friend, text somebody, hey, I was listening to this episode. You should check it out. That would be super helpful. And I also recently started a free weekly newsletter called Hypothetically Great. You can check it out at hypotheticallygreat.com and sign up there for the newsletter. Sometimes the topics of the newsletter match up nicely with what we're discussing on the podcast and uh, can kind of go deeper into the same topic. And other times it will be completely unrelated. A lot of the things I write about there are more generally about entrepreneurship and startups, not necessarily about tech news like we'll find here on the podcast. So let's get into the topic at hand. This year's Super Bowl was dominated by advertisements about cryptocurrencies. I am not exactly a sports fan. I do not normally watch American football or any football for that matter, but I did tune into the Super Bowl mostly to check out the halftime show and the commercials, neither of which disappointed. We could do a whole episode on uh, 90s and early 2000s hip hop, but instead let's turn our sights to the commercials. There was a commercial for Coinbase, which is the leading cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, They had this really creative commercial where a floating QR code with no text on the screen to indicate what it was, uh, just kind of inviting you to scan it and see what's up. QR codes were the real winner of this pandemic, I think. And um, the site actually crashed. People couldn't get to Coinbase 
which is terrible for them. I mean, I can't imagine actually being on that team. Must have been so panic-inducing. But it's also an indication of how many people tried to actually get there with that QR code. And eventually it did work. And then there were commercials by two or three competitors to Coinbase. There was the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, which uh, was starring Larry David, the world's ultimate skeptic. And so he's now endorsing this crypto exchange. And then Crypto.com, which was starring LeBron James. If you remember, there was a Matt Damon commercial for Crypto.com back in the fall. And that's basically exactly when Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, uh, the prices started to decline. So a lot of people half-jokingly said that, you know, Matt Damon and these sort of celebrity endorsements was the beginning of the end for crypto. We've seen a little bit of a rebound since then. Uh, and then there was eToro, which is a stock trading platform that now has introduced crypto and some other social features as well. So what does this mean? Why were all of these companies running Super Bowl ads? And what is a cryptocurrency? I wonder how many of you listening right now have used any of these exchanges? Do you own any cryptocurrency? Have you ever used cryptocurrency? Have you ever been sent cryptocurrency or sent it to someone else, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know the answer because we do not have an ability for you to talk to me in this podcast format. But my guess is that you are at the very least crypto curious. And I think that the intended audience for a lot of these commercials was the crypto curious. These are conversation starters with a mass audience. If you're running a Super Bowl commercial, it's because uh, you want to hit everybody. It's like the opposite of a targeted ad campaign, maybe on a social media platform where you say, okay, I want this sort of demographic and people that are interested in these sorts of topics or follow these sorts of accounts. This is the opposite. This is like as broad strokes as you can get. I want this to hit every American at every age, in every state, uh, in every occupation, I want them to see this, like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Coinbase. And so this, to me, really represents the official mainstreaming of crypto. This is the beginning of these mainstream crypto ad campaigns, not the end. And what impact exactly this will have and in what amount of time, I don't know. Nobody knows. But I think it's very possible that we will look back at Super Bowl 2022 as sort of a watershed moment where crypto really started to catch on in the mainstream. And remember, with cryptocurrencies, the main reason that prices go up or down is simply whether people are buying or selling. If more people buy a cryptocurrency, its price goes up because there's uh, presumably a limited supply of it, but increased demand. And if people are selling cryptocurrency, then you have more supply than there is demand. People are trying to get rid of it. And so in order to find buyers, uh, as you're looking to sort of get rid of that cryptocurrency, you need to drive the price lower and lower until you find someone who's willing to buy it at that low price. So more people coming into crypto generally means that crypto prices will rise, which is sort of a self-perpetuating system, which is one of the reasons that people worry about it 
but it doesn't make it any less real. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to just do a bit of a deep dive on what is crypto? What is a cryptocurrency? What are the differences between the main cryptocurrencies that you're likely to hear about or maybe considering buying yourself? And what does this really mean as we look ahead to the rest of 2022? In prepping for this episode, I was thinking about episodes from previous seasons. This week, a year ago, it was one of our very first episodes ever on February 12th, 2021. We had an episode called Cryptomania. And it's funny that a year later, we really are still very much in the zone of cryptomania. And I think very much more so than a year ago. A quick disclaimer, and uh, I'm going to change my voice so that it sounds like someone else that's more official than me is saying this. But this content is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not financial advice. Okay. So let's jump in here. What is cryptocurrency? Well, first you need to think about what is a blockchain. You hear this term, blockchain, blockchain technology, different blockchains. Basically, the best way to think about blockchain is data, information. This could really be anything, but let's just imagine it as data about buying and selling, right? So how many did a particular person buy? How many did a particular person sell or potentially transfer from one person to another? And that data, instead of being written in a single place, like for instance, when you deposit money or withdraw money from your bank account, your bank is keeping track of what's happening there. Instead, the data is written to lots and lots and lots and lots of computers in a redundant way. So you have thousands of computers that all have the same data and none of them is the main computer. They're all peers. They're all equal participants. And basically when you need to write new data there, you are asking the network of all of those computers to make sure that the thing that is happening is legitimate, that it's real. And you're looking for consensus. Different blockchains can have different threshold for that. Bitcoin, for instance, is majority wins. So you kind of put a signal out into the network and you say, hey, like, is this legit? Is this person really doing this thing? Buying, selling, transferring? And they will say, meaning the network, yes or no. And if the majority say yes, then that gets written into the blockchain. And a block is just a piece of data uh, or a bunch of pieces of data. And then that is chained on with other blocks to create the blockchain. And it's written onto all of those different computers that they all have a record of it. And if any of those computers goes down or disappears from the network for whatever reason, all the other ones still have it. So there's a lot of redundancy in the system and there's no central party, which is why this sort of technology is called decentralized. These are all equal but disparate participants uh, there. And you have a different amount of say depending on sort of how much of the network you are responsible for and different blockchains have different modes for doing that. So you'll hear things like proof of work, which is basically uh, if your computer is actually doing work, like solving, we can think of them as puzzles, 
um, then you're showing that, okay, I'm actually using a good amount of energy to sort of prove that I am working as part of this network. There's also something called proof of stake, which is based on how much you own. So if you own a certain amount of the blockchain or rather the tokens represented uh, that represent that blockchain, then you would have more voting power towards that consensus than others. We're already getting too deep. You don't need to know any of this. The idea is that there's no central place. This is a ledger of who owns what, who's sending to who, who's buying, who's selling, that is distributed across a broad network of computers all over the world. So, of course, Bitcoin is the main cryptocurrency. It's the one that we hear about the most. And Bitcoin's original intention was really to be a digital currency where you could use it to buy things. Because of the price volatility of Bitcoin uh, relative to what are called fiat currencies like the US dollar, it's not that useful because you're going to go buy a carton of milk and every day it's going to cost something dramatically different because the value of Bitcoin goes up and down so much. And so at least in the Western world here in the US, Bitcoin's primary purpose is as a store of value, kind of like a stock or a block of gold. Basically, you are buying some Bitcoin and then you're hoping that the value of the Bitcoin you own will go up over time so that whenever you decide to sell that Bitcoin, you will make a profit. And it's as simple as that. If the price goes down and you choose to sell it while the price is down, then you will lose money on that uh, Bitcoin. And that's really all it is. And you can buy any percentage of a Bitcoin. So, you know, Bitcoin's price today is somewhere around 40,000 US dollars. Uh, at its peak, it was around 70,000. But you don't need $40,000 to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy 0. 0.000 whatever percent of a Bitcoin um, with any amount of money. You could buy $1 worth of Bitcoin. And that's a totally legitimate way to get started on your cryptocurrency journey. The second most popular cryptocurrency and the other one that you are likely to have heard of is called Ether or Ethereum is likely the word that you are more familiar with. And Ethereum is a blockchain. Ethereum is a type of cryptocurrency, but its native cryptocurrency is actually called Ether. Um, the abbreviation is ETH, E-T-H. And so you might just hear it called ETH. And so I think what's typical is someone would buy some Bitcoin and buy some ETH. And in some ways, ETH is the same, especially as an investment vehicle. You're buying ETH at a certain price. Right now, ETH is hovering somewhere around 3,000 US dollars. And you hope that it goes up and then eventually you might want to sell it and make a profit. But that's where the similarities end. Ethereum is a much richer story that leads us away from cryptocurrencies and into what now is called Web3, the broader category of all of the technological and really cultural innovation that is happening under the umbrella of crypto. And Ethereum is really at the heart and center of that. And the thing I think a lot of people don't understand 
about these cryptocurrencies. So like when you open Coinbase and you see all of these different coins that you can buy and sell, most of them represent some sort of project or company, a startup of some sort. And these are almost like stocks. It's like a stock exchange where you have the stock, the shares, uh, in a particular company, and then you have the company to look at and see like, okay, what does this company do? How much revenue do they generate? Uh, who are they targeting, et cetera, et cetera. And it's basically like that with crypto. Each coin you see is likely to have some corresponding project behind it. I say project because it's not necessarily a company. It could be some sort of nonprofit organization like the Ethereum Foundation, and we'll talk all about Ethereum, um, or it could be a DAO, which is a group of people that are somehow contributing to, again, a project is just the most generic word I have for it. But the way you should think of it is like a startup. There's a startup. They're actually working on something. They're building some sort of software. And this coin is essentially buying a stock in that startup. It's not exactly the same because you're not actually getting ownership in it per se, but chances are there'll be some correlation between how that startup performs and how the coin performs, although not necessarily just like we see in stocks, right? So sometimes the company is doing well, but the stock price still goes down. Sometimes the company is doing badly and the stock price still goes up. Um, there's correlation, but not causation. And it's important to remember that. That's different than something like Bitcoin, where there is no underlying project. There's no team. Nobody works at Bitcoin. It truly is decentralized and only exists as itself, as Bitcoin. There are lots of developers working on Bitcoin, but they don't work at Bitcoin. Um, and it's a subtle but important distinction. And then you have these meme coins like Dogecoin is perhaps the best well-known that, again, there is like somebody built it, but there's not like a company that's blossoming there and you're kind of like supporting that company by buying the coin. It's really just a pure uh, speculative asset. And I think there's something actually kind of beautiful about that and Bitcoin too, that the stock exchange at least sort of pretends that the prices are based on the performance of the underlying company, but it really is just speculation. More people buy, price goes up. More people sell, price goes down. And what moves the market is sentiment and emotion and all of these sort of things that aren't really tied to the core business. And so it's kind of fun to strip away any semblance of there even being an underlying asset. Like, no, 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 there's nothing here. It's just the speculation alone. Um, it's kind of like pristine in, in a way. It's very clarifying. But most cryptocurrencies actually aren't like that. A lot of these cryptocurrencies really are representing some sort of underlying project. And the biggest and most well-known is Ethereum. Ethereum is almost like an operating system. I don't think they call it that, but I'm calling it that, that exists across a network of computers. So it's not only that you can store financial transactions across all of those thousands of computers like I was just talking about, with Bitcoin, but basically you could store anything, including code. So you could actually run an application the way you would run an application off your own computer or off a server somewhere, like uh, you're running you know, the Facebook application 
on the Facebook server when you hit facebook.com. But that could be running instead of on a single computer or a single sort of server instance, it could be running across the whole network. And they call this the Ethereum virtual machine or EVM, almost like a synthetic computer that is made up of lots of actual computers. And this is really profound because in theory, the virtual machine could do anything that a single machine could do and maybe even can do more. You might hear the term smart contract and you can think of this as basically a small computer program. It's some sort of automated function that does something. It really could be anything, but it's basically like when this happens, do this. And when this other thing happens, do that. And if that doesn't happen, then do this other thing. You know, if this, then that kind of logic, um, like a contract, right? So imagine a legal contract, some sort of document. That's exactly what it's saying, right? It's laying out all the conditions and what happens in each conditional case. If this happens, that triggers this. If that happens, this. Um, these are the rules. And a smart contract is just an automated version of a contract. And because the contract is being executed across this network of participating uh, computers and people that ultimately control those computers, you have this decentralized trust. So unlike a contract between two parties where you say, well, look, I'm just sort of taking you at your word that you're actually going to fulfill the obligations of this contract and you're taking me at my word. And if we default on the contract, there's some sort of remedy through a governmental body. I can sue you and take you to court and then someone else will sort of preside over what should happen. The smart contract just automates all of that and it in a way takes away the need for trust. But another way to say that is that you can trust everybody, assuming that you trust the contract itself. But the beautiful thing is that everything is open source. Uh, everything is transparent. Everything is viewable and knowable by the public, by the community. And so anybody can see what's under the hood, unlike in quote unquote web two, where you're using these software applications built by these big tech companies, but you don't really know what's happening inside their black box. Ironically, even though crypto has this reputation for being sketchy or scammy or whatever, and there are plenty of sketchy and scammy things just like in every corner of humanity, but actually it's the most transparent thing there is on the internet. Everyone can see exactly what everyone else is doing, but you can remain anonymous because again, you don't actually need the relationship to have the trust. Um, and I think anonymity kind of just inherently seems sketchy, but it doesn't need to be necessarily. And so what are some of the applications there? Well, there's a whole sort of genre called DeFi or decentralized finance, where you have these financial tools that are, of course, using cryptocurrency as the sort of monetary value that you're using, but you can take out loans, you can have interest-bearing accounts, you can do all sorts of interesting things. Uh, then there's also NFTs. Those are running on these same sort of virtual machines or across this whole network. And there are competitors to Ethereum too. Ethereum is what we call a layer one blockchain 
but you might hear of others like Solana or Avalanche. Those are other layer ones. They compete mostly with Ethereum, and we'll talk about those another time. But each of these technologies and even most of the applications that are being built on top of these blockchains also all have a cryptocurrency associated with them. And so Ethereum has ETH or Ether rather, uh, which is the cryptocurrency, but its competitors, Solana and Avalanche, also have cryptocurrencies. Sol and AVAX are the stock tickers or like the symbols for their respective tokens that you can also buy and sell as a financial instrument. And then you have things like uh, a DeFi app, let's say like Uniswap is one of the most popular. Uniswap, you can think of as a decentralized exchange similar to Coinbase, where you can essentially buy and sell different cryptocurrencies. Coinbase, which is where we started the episode, Coinbase is actually like a totally normal company. They have a board of directors. They're a C corporation. Uh, they're a public company. Coinbase is listed on NASDAQ, right? It's like as centralized and normal as can be, whereas Uniswap is a decentralized application, meaning that the application itself runs on all of these different computers. So the network is provided by Ethereum, but then you have an application like Uniswap running across that whole network on this virtual machine. And then, of course, Uniswap has its own coin. Uni is their symbol, which you can also buy and sell, ironically, on Uniswap. But you could also buy it on Coinbase. So where does all this leave us? That was a lot of information. And at the same time, we've barely scratched the surface. Throughout this season, we will definitely be talking more about Web3, about NFTs, more about Ethereum, its competitors, uh, these layer two technologies that will help cut down on some of the uh, drawbacks of using a distributed decentralized system like this. And again, it's just a weird thing because there are these tech breakthroughs and then almost completely separately, there are these investment assets called cryptocurrencies and they're not unrelated, and yet they are almost best thought of as being unrelated. One is a way to diversify your financial investments, and the other is a brand new way to write programs and software and to think about uh, software development and software use altogether. And um, those two things are maybe two conversations that are best had in isolation, even though they are sort of inextricably linked in the end. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. I'll see you next week for more tech news for MBAs. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>